everyone, you're listening to Bionic Bug Podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I discuss the latest news about emerging technology, read chapters from Bionic Bug, and explore the real-life technologies featured in my novel. We'll discuss where fiction meets reality in the future. Hey everyone, welcome back to Bionic Bug Podcast. You are listening to episode number 20. This is your host, Natasha Bajma, fiction author, futurist, and national security expert. I'm recording this episode on September 16, 2018. I had to pause there for a moment because I couldn't believe it was September 16. (laughs) I'm excited to note that we're at the halfway point for this podcast. Bionic Bug has 43 chapters, so we will have 22 more episodes. But never fear, I am working on the concept for my next podcast, and you will hear about it first. In other personal news, I've started writing book three in the Lara Kingsley series. It's called Genomic Clone. In this story, Lara tackles a missing persons case, and that's all I will say for now. If you are enjoying the show, please leave a review on iTunes. You can also support my time and costs in producing the show for only a few dollars a month, please go to www.patreon.com forward slash Natasha Bajima. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Natasha Bajima. All right, let's talk tech. My first headline for this week is plant wearables and airdrop sensors could sow big data seeds. Published on September 10 at spectrum.ieee.org. Many of you have heard about the Internet of Things, This is the trend of making electronic devices smart and connecting to the internet. And it's the sensors that make these devices smart, allowing them to collect data either on their internal workings and processes or on the external environment, and then make that data available online to human users. Over the past few years, sensors have become very small and very cheap. And that has led to us putting sensors in just about everything. Someday we will have sensors in our clothing. Um, uh Oh, we're in trouble now. So this article um, talks about researchers in Saudi Arabia who are looking at dropping smart tags from drones onto plants below to monitor crops and report on plant conditions. Researchers created a plant wearable sensor made from polymer and thin gold metal film that has the flexibility to attach to any position on the plant. They tested the stretchable strain sensor on both barley and lucky bamboo plants during trial periods of several days or hours to show that they could detect even the most minute growth changes. So we are getting very micro here. Uh, Second, the team created a 3D printed temperature and humidity sensor that can be dropped from drones in large numbers. So here we see uh, a convergence of 3D printing together with sensors, which are microelectronics essentially, together with drones. Isn't that interesting? This is part of a larger trend in agriculture in which technology is being used by farmers to provide them with more information on the status of their crops. Farmers are also increasingly using drones both to monitor their crops and deliver um, pesticide and and other things. Um, So we often don't think this is great. This helps farmers out a lot, but we don't think about the broader implications. And I just want to um, talk about one that someone told me the other day. So DJI, um, this is an off-the-shelf drone manufacturer, Chinese drone manufacturer. They currently control about 70% of the off-the-shelf drone market. 
Um, if you're using them for agriculture um, and putting sensors on them, these dr drones collect data. Um, but these drones are also updated by DJI through various patches. So the question I have is, does DJI somehow have access to and or collect data from these drones? How could this agricultural data be potentially used against us? So in peacetime, we think data is a good thing if it allows us to be smarter. But in wartime, could this data be used to take out our entire nation's crops? Um, just some food for thought. And yes, I intended to be punny. Um, we are entering an era where everything generates digital information and where everything is connected to the internet. And the, the companies and or governments that have access to this information have an extremely valuable and powerful tool at their fingertips. So we need to ask questions. Who, who has access to the data? What can they do with it? Are we thinking through the implications of data generation? And I don't think that we are uh, sufficiently. My next headline is related. Um, Big data and us, are we all being given a reputation score? Published on August 25. Uh, many of you may or may not know this, but the Chinese government is currently mulling a social credit system for their entire population. What is a social credit? Well, the score would be based on every action you do on a daily basis. And most of our actions are now recorded online in some way, shape or form. What you buy how timely you're repaying your loans, where you travel, where you work, who are your friends, how much do you socialize? All of this will add up to your rating. Of course, if, if you um, are found guilty of crimes, not paying off debt, all of those things, those could lead to a lower um, rating. Um, and I think, you know, you're, you're probably freaking out right now, wow, the sounds Big Brother by George Orwell, um, and we're probably breathing a little bit more easily that we don't live in China, but I'm telling you maybe we shouldn't. Every day, when we, from the time we get up, we're creating a digital trail. Every time you check an email, every time you like a post, every time you swipe your credit card, it's, it's kind of, think about it. Think about how many things you do on a daily basis where you're interacting with the internet, so with the digital world, and where is that data going, right? Who has access to that data? All of the data that we generate on a daily business can be used um, to generate a reputation score or online profile that has real world physical effects. Um, and it's just a matter of who's going to do it. Will it be the tech giants? Will it be governments? Um, how are they gonna leverage this data? And we need to start thinking about this. It probably doesn't surprise you that Facebook assigns a reputation score to its users. Well, this is just the beginning. My last headline for today is you can now genetically engineer your own mutant frogs for $499, published in futurism.com on September 14. Are you looking for a unique Christmas gift? Well, look no further. Uh, my friend and biohacker, Dr. Josiah Saner and his company, The Odin, have produced kits containing everything you need to use the CRISPR gene editing technique to make frogs bigger. I suspect you need more skill than I have, so I'm not getting one of these, but if you have a budding scientist in your family, this could be a lot of fun. Each kit comes with six green tree frogs native to Georgia and Louisiana, along with cages, food syringes, and a genetic cocktail. So why, why do I think this is fascinating? Well, I, I think it's pretty awesome, um, but it's just another example about how powerful technology is becoming more and more accessible to individuals. And that's going to change the relationship between society and governments and society and large companies. Um, it's leveling the playing field. And what does that mean for, for other things? 
All right, let's find out what's happening in Bionic Bug because things are getting tense. Last week, Lara received another visit from a Bionic Bug and found something suspicious in her friend's apartment. Let's find out what happens next. Chapter 21, Arson. As Lara exited the cab with keys in hand, she glanced up wistfully at her townhouse. She'd not seen it since the fire. Vic left Maggie's apartment first thing in the morning and called her with the good news that the contractors were finished desmoking her apartment. She had the green light to move back home much earlier than originally projected. They were ahead of schedule, which was perfect. After finding Sully's key, Lara couldn't get out of Maggie's place fast enough. She couldn't shake a growing sense of distrust in her friend. She fingered Sully's Yoda figurine now attached to her own set of keys. She didn't know what this key would unlock, but she was determined to find out. Inhaling deeply through her nose, she could detect subtle remnants of smoke in the air. How could such a small fire do this much damage? The first floor windows, broken by firemen in their desperate efforts to suppress the fire, were still boarded up. The blackened frames gave the lower level the appearance of an abandoned building. Vic said the contractors planned to replace the windows the next day. That couldn't come soon enough. She dreaded the idea of working in an office with no natural light. Carrying her suitcase up the steps made her injured arm ache. When she reached the landing, Lara sensed something hovering above her. She tilted her head slightly and listened to the whirring coming from above, pretending she didn't notice she unlocked the front door. Right before stepping into the building, Lara looked up quickly and caught a glimpse of a quadcopter drone equipped with a surveillance camera. In a flash, the drone hid from sight. So I'm not imagining things. There was no delivery drone the other day. Someone was monitoring her every move. She wondered how many times she'd missed the stalker's drone in plain sight. Once inside her townhouse, a huge wave of relief came over her. Home at last. At least for a bit longer. The hallway looked untouched by the fire except for the slight odor of burnt wood. The door to her office stood wide open and a crew busily worked to finish up the repairs. Lara set her suitcase by the stairs and walked into her office. The living room and kitchen were much more of a construction zone than a living space. Black soot and ashes covered the hardwood floor. The contractors blocked off portions of the room with do not enter tape where they were still replacing the floorboards. Lara peered around the corner at her old storage room. The walls were completely reframed with new wood. A stack of drywall sat on the floor at the end of the hallway waiting for installation. The amount of work left to be done shocked Lara. She'd hoped they'd be farther along. Vic sat at the charred countertop with his back toward her. The new piece of granite leaned against the wall in the kitchen. He typed awkwardly with one hand while his casted left arm rested in a sling. The digi-specs and USB drive with the Beatle video footage lay on the counter next to him. Despite her objections, Vic insisted on coming to work to keep an eye on the contractors and make sure they wired the new electronics correctly. Earlier that morning, he had texted her, Oh my God, these guys are worse than pie bowlers. They don't know what they're doing. I need to watch their every move. Morning, Vic. How are you feeling? He'd left Maggie's apartment when Lara was still fast asleep. Vic didn't look up from his computer tablet and continued typing furiously with one hand on the virtual keyboard projected onto the countertop. Still a bit achy, but otherwise I'm doing okay, boss. 
Did you get a chance to look at the video feed from the Beetle? Lara asked, pointing to the drive. Yeah, the footage was doctored all right. Someone with access to the USB damaged the file. Either that or someone corrupted the video wirelessly, which would require some mad skills. Lara paused for a few minutes, wondering who might have damaged the file and why. And the Digispecs? Did they check out clean? Vic shook his head. No, but they're clean now. I found the program Fiddler installed to monitor the glasses and disabled it. It wasn't easy to find, but pretty simple to remove. I knew it. Are you actually sure that they are clean now? Lara furrowed her eyebrows. Vic bobbed his head. 100% certain. Okay, I trust you. Did you find my baseball glove anywhere by chance? She asked with a glimmer of hope. Vic shook his head and frowned. Either you put your glove somewhere else or it burned up in the fire. I'm really sorry. The pit of her stomach dropped and her expression went slack. Vic avoided direct eye contact. As her eyes moistened, the initial pang in her chest changed to a dull ache. Get a grip, Lara. It was just a glove. She decided to change the subject. You took the remote though, right? Vic hung his head. Oh, you're never going to forgive me, he mumbled. The remote is gone too, destroyed in the fire, I think. And I didn't get enough time to take it apart for clues. Lara grimaced. This was not good news. She hadn't told Sanchez she'd found the missing remote. And now the smoking gun was a dead end. Maybe he doesn't know what won't hurt him? A light knock at the, on the office door startled her. She turned to see the detective, followed by Rob, step over a pile of blackened wood. Her stomach did a flip and the blood drained from her face. Speak of the devil. That was close. Hey, Lara, Rob said with a smirk. Is this a good time? He surveyed the damage with raised eyebrows and a low whistle. Sanchez avoided looking at her altogether. Sure, come in, Lara said, surprised by her lack of discomfort. After their recent interactions, Rob felt familiar to her and strange all at the same time. She couldn't remember why she dated him. Of course, besides his curly brown hair and an irresistible grin. Am I finally over him? For the first time since their breakup, there was no painful stab in her chest at the sight of him. Maybe crossing paths with him on Sally's case had been a good thing. Vic waved at the two men. Can I get either of you a coffee or tea? He paused before adding, or a flower vase? Vic! She gave him a look, but he just grinned. Sanchez shoved his hands deep into his pocket and stared at his feet. Rob looked at Vic with a sideways grin as he scratched his temple. Um, I'm okay, Vic. Thank you. The detective is acting like he didn't stop by last night. Lara wasn't sure if she could adjust to the idea of the detective not being angry with her. She couldn't figure out what had changed, but she was relieved they were getting along. Though she prayed the detective was not, didn't, had not somehow developed a crush on her, the thought gave her the heebie-jeebies. An awkward pause hung in the air until the detective said, Say, was that BMW that tried to run... Was that a BMW that tried to run you down? Lara nodded. I remember you also mentioning a black BMW convertible out at Fort Meade when your fuel line was cut. Sanchez rubbed his chin. Do you think it was the same car? Lara shrugged. I don't know, maybe? The DC area is chock full of BMWs, so it could have belonged to anyone. Convertibles are pretty rare, though. It's just too bad you didn't get the plate, Sanchez said. Lara sighed and held up her hands. I was too busy trying not to get dead. Next time I'll try to do better. The detective snickered. The half-smile on his face made his brown eyes twinkle in a way she hadn't noticed before. 
We put out a bulletin to the general public requesting personal video or pictures taken of the car that tried to run you down. We'll see if anything turns up. We know there's a black BMW convertible registered to Stepanov. If we can get a plate number from a bystander video, that could be evidence for his involvement. Lara tilted her head at the new information. He's actually pretty good looking. That is, if you could get past the chip on his shoulder. Is that all? Lara asked. I've got some unpacking and inspecting work to do here. Sanchez shot her, shot her a stern look, as if he disliked her tone. No, that's not all. I received the fire inspector's report yesterday and wanted to go over the evidence with you. Oh? There was a... The inspector found some abnormalities that suggest attempted murder. Lara's eyes grew big. Well, in the hospital, the detective had told her there was evidence of arson. So she knew the fire was set intentionally, presumably to destroy her files, or so she thought, but she hadn't considered it to be yet another attempt on her life. Someone is rather determined to kill me. What abnormalities? Lara asked. The incendiary device in the storage room contained napalm. Napalm? That would explain the weird smell, Lara said. Militaries had used napalm in the past to burn people alive. How would someone get their hands on that? Sanchez rubbed his forehead. I looked it up, and it's pretty easy to make. The instructions are online. You mix a few common ingredients, and you get a jelly-like substance that sticks to almost anything and burns for a long time. Once ignited, it burns at more than 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. A napalm fire is almost waterproof. So that's why there's so much damage here, Lara asked. Yep, Sanchez said. Lara furrowed her brow. But how did someone set off the device? The device was similar to a Molotov cocktail and a timer. The timer started wirelessly by remote cell phone signal. When the timer ran out, a lighter released the flame that burned through the long wick. The inspector find, found glass everywhere, so we think the device was a glass bottle containing napalm and a long wick soaked in kerosene. When the flame reached the inside of the bottle, it exploded, spreading napalm all over your case files and walls. Did you find any evidence of who might have done this? Lara asked. Sanchez shook his head. If there was any evidence left behind, it burned up in the fire. However, we did find a few things. Lara raised her eyebrows. Oh? Someone returned to the townhouse after the fire. We found shoe prints in the ash. The shoe tread shows minimal wear and indicates a woman size 10 or man size 9. Does that help us? Lara asked as she ran her fingers through her hair. Not really. We need to match the shoe print to the shoe of a suspect. Lara threw up her hands. And we don't have a solid, solid suspect, so we still have zilch. The detective huffed. I wasn't finished. We found a few strands of hair stuck to your kitchen window, which was left open. In my apartment? Lara searched her mind to remember if she'd forgotten to latch the window. Yes, the intruder climbed the fire escape and entered and departed the townhouse through your kitchen window. We found ash footprints on the floor identical to those downstairs. Is that it? Sanchez scowled at her. I'm not done. The lab analyzed the hair from your apartment and found a match to the mitochondrial DNA of the person who cut the fuel line on your bike. Of course, because hair does not contain nuclear DNA, it could have been this Marcia Husney woman, any of her siblings or her mother, but we're pretty certain Marcia is our suspect. Unfortunately, the name is an alias and hasn't come up in the system for 10 years. Okay, so we still ultimately have nothing, Lara snorted. 
Sanchez looked like he was about to implode. Lara, have you or Vic dug up any new leads on the case? Rob interrupted, probably in an attempt to defuse the situation. We could really use a hit on Fiddler's location. Lara nodded. When I spoke to Anita Fiddler, I finally linked those strange new p- newspaper clippings to the case. And, the detective was all ears, as his tense shoulders relaxed a bit. Lara smiled. Jan Spielmann changed his name to John Fiddler when he moved out here to the East Coast. Huh. That is interesting. But what does that really tell us? Sanchez asked with a half-cocked grin and sarcastic tone. It gives us motive, I suppose. Lara ignored his jab. Fiddler's mother died because of U.S. Army's negligence. Motive for what? Detective pressed. I'm not really sure. I learned from his daughter that he worked for the U.S. Army at Fort Detrick for several decades. He was fired recently, but I didn't find out why. So do we think Fiddler killed Sully or not? Rob asked. Lars shook her head. I don't think so. Well, if Fiddler didn't kill Sully, then who the fuck did? Sanchez asked. Lara preferred not to engage in wild speculation, but humored him. My gut tells me this Cybershop character, whoever he or she is, killed Sully. And I think Cybershop is the one trying to hurt me, too. But I don't have the faintest clue why. Lara glanced at the others to see what they thought. What do you think Cybershop's motive might be? Rob asked. No idea. I'm still trying to make sense of why Fiddler hired Sully to investigate Cybershop's identity. Her thoughts drifted for a moment to the $100,000. Stop it, Lara. It's not worth it. No money is worth that kind of compromise. Lara, I think I found something, Vic said in an excited tone, looking up from his tablet. The detective and Rob walked over to the counter and huddled around the screen. What did you find? Lara asked, standing on her tiptoes behind Rob and the detective who were blocking her view. I've been working around the clock to determine the location of KillerBot's computer, and I think I finally did it. He's been a bit sloppy in covering his tracks on the internet, and I successfully installed malware on his computer. This morning, someone clicked on the link, and I got an IP address, which appears to be assigned to a building in Tacoma Park. Of course, the IP address could be spoofed, so we need to check it out to be sure. Where is it? Laura asked. My best guess is the computer is located in this abandoned storefront. Vic pointed to a map of Tacoma Park in D.C. I did some digging and found that the space is not in use at the moment, but it used to be a violin shop. Lara raised an eyebrow. A violin shop? I know from his daughter that Fiddler played the violin. Perhaps he ran the shop before changing his name. Let's go check it out now before the lead goes dead, Rob said. My cruiser is out front. Lara agreed and followed the guys out her office. Finally, a solid lead. Let's hope this one doesn't dead end, too. Thanks for listening to the Bionic Bug Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Natasha Bajma. See you next week.